This is the Mile High Five podcast with Carl Jensen and Doug Cunnington. We have authentic conversations about the journey to Phi, health, happiness, and some very odd tangents. We interview Phi experts, side hustlers, people on their way to Phi, and those who have reached the other side. Join us every week, and if you want the show notes and links and all that other stuff, head over to milehighfi.com. Okay, so Georgie just did the introduction, but I'll do it a second time. I think in dog language, she said, hello world, welcome to the Mile High Fly Podcast. I'm Georgie, uh, the dog was saying that. I am Carl Jensen with my co-host. I'm Doug Cunnington. And we have a very special guest today who happens to be a local and in the Mile High Fly studio, which is pretty cool. I always like in-person interviews. Tell us who you are and what you do. Yeah, uh, my name is Eric Peterson, and what I do is practically anything. Um, I am, I guess you'd officially call fire. So I kind of do things, create things, uh, build things, and try to inspire people to get their mind around financial products and how to live their life the best way. And that's ultimately what I'm here for is to maybe inspire a few people. Awesome. We're going to jump right into something that, uh, should be exciting. So why do actively managed mutual funds suck? Yeah. And, and also you can give us just a tiny bit why you know about this and then you could, we'll, we'll back into it all. You bet. You bet. So past life, I worked in the financial industry and I wasn't a financial advisor. Um, I was the guy behind the scenes um, creating mutual funds. And uh, ultimately... Uh, your heading of why they suck is why I got out of that industry. Um, I have a couple great examples of just really, really smart, talented people that manage money, but ultimately you don't get their benefit because of fees. So, I mean, I think the fire community probably knows about index funds and how awesome Vanguard has helped everybody out. But there's a ton of mutual fund companies, families out there that all they're out there to do is to create something a little unique and charge you a bunch of money for it. Um, an example I always think of is there was a portfolio, ma- I'll keep names out of this. There was a portfolio manager that I worked with and super talented. A lot of people compared him to Warren Buffett, like had that type of talent and ultimately my job was to create mutual funds and I did some back testing on them and he beat the index. He literally beat the index and it's really hard to do 15 year period does fantastic, does a lot of buy and hold that kind of thing. But then when you start slapping on those fees, you might as well just index it because you can't beat it enough all the time to be able to make up those fees. Those active management fees just erode so much of your wealth. And it's it's kind of like, well, we have all these portfolio managers that are getting paid so much money and all the support. Like I was one of the support guys. And ultimately, it's all for naught because you can put that money in an index and you can get to the same place, if not a better place. So it's a lot of churning, not churning in the financial sense, but you know, like where you buy and sell for the heck of it. It's just all this motion that doesn't create any value. 
And in my last job, um, I was in that position for about five years and a lot of realization of, wow, this is like the sweetest job I've ever had in my life. This is, I literally do research and development to make the next new cool mutual fund. And I was just like, man, but what am I doing? I'm not helping anybody. Like in all reality, you know, you can just index your money and you're going to be better off and you don't have to pay these portfolio managers that make literally millions of dollars a year and buy awesome houses and big boats. They don't even need to really exist, Yeah, <laughs> which is sad. <laughs> and how many years did you work in the industry? 20, 20 plus. When did you know that it was bullshit? Oof. <laughs> oh, probably a decade in, about 10 years in. Okay. Um, there was another job that I had where I, I called it, I made uh, financial advisors look smart. So I would literally build portfolios for them. So I'd do the asset allocation. I'd pick out the funds. Sometimes I'd um, pick out individual stocks. And then they would take it to their clients and say, hey, I got the smart guy back at home office. Here's what he says, you, you should how you should invest your money. But in that job, we would charge 100 to 125 bips just for my services. What was that? When that's like 1 to 1.25% of your assets. Oh, wow. And then you also had mutual fund fees on top of that. So I was literally picking out funds that would have um, a half a percent, a 0.75% fees on top of that. So you're, you could have a 2% fee and that's virtually like impossible to beat. If you're trying to benchmark it against, you know, like a, just a generic asset allocation from, you know, standard and pours or something. So it's just, it's, I was like, wow, like, am I really adding value for these people? Well, I'm definitely helping pad the pocketbook, the, the wallets of the advisors. Yeah. But am I getting these guys to a better place? Mm, not so much. I have a question and it's a dangerous question and I might have a follow-up depending on how you answer. You referred to this guy you worked with who was super brilliant. Do you think there are people out there who can beat the indices over the long term? And when I say long term, I want my money to be in there for at least a decade. Do you think there are people who can do that and due to skill and not luck? Because that's one of the issues, right? You might see a fund, I can think of a couple that killed it, but they just got lucky. They happened to be in yeah. one certain stock, maybe the Apple or Google, and that made them outperform. So yeah, what do you think? Um, the realization that I had was when I was back testing that guy, who I have a ton of respect for, is yes, I think there's a very unique amount of people, maybe like 2% in the world, that can beat an index consistently over a longer period of time, decades. Um, well, I mean, and ultimately, like Warren Buffett's a perfect example, right? Um, yes. Can it be replicated and completely done? I don't think so. I, th I think it's almost like uh, a Rembrandt or, you know, uh, just these people that just have that knack. Um, but ultimately, yes, I think it can happen. Um, and to that point too, um, and Carl, you're a perfect example of this is I think Picking or buying individual stocks is probably your best way to create massive wealth. 
Um, and there's a lot of people that like, you know, the whole index. So this goes back to, I've gone to Warren Buffett meetings for a number of years, you know, the, the big, huge, um, <laughs> I don't know what you call it. Um, Woodstock of capitalism, but there's a lot of people that are like, Oh, if you don't know what you're doing, just index it and call it good. But honestly, I really, I'm a true believer in taking maybe 10 to 20% of your portfolio and putting it in individual stocks because that is your best way of being able to truly hit a home run. You're never going to hit a home run with an index, right? You're always just going to be consistent and do a decent job. But uh, yeah. And then like, if you do hit it the home run, yeah, you're going to be beating that index for decades to come. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot to unwrap there, which we, yeah. <laughs> which we don't have time to go into, but yeah, I think the right choice for most people. There's so many things that go into stocks, even if you can pick the right stocks. Warren Buffett talks about this all the time, that temperament is probably the yes. most important thing for a successful long-term investor. So even if you buy the one that knocked it out of the park, the Amazon or Google, all these stocks are going to have and have had had 50% drops in their life. And how are you going to react when it does that? You can tell yourself how you think you're going to react, but you'll find out who you really are when it happens. And a lot of people just can't deal with it. They freak out and sell at the worst possible time. Yeah. And ironically, I'm the guy that freaks out when I'm like, I doubled my money in a year. Sweet. I'm out. <laughs> and the, the other thing to that too is again, 10 to 20% of your portfolio. And for some reason, people have this in their mind that it's an all or none deal. So say you did double your money. Well, sell 25% of your stake in or half of it, you know, you don't have like, that's, that's the classic thing of what's my dad and Apple. Like I got him into Apple stock and it literally doubled like within months. And I'm like, dad, you're doing awesome. Like let's sell part of it. And we did, but ultimately cost him tens of thousands of dollars on the other end, but he still did really well. So yeah, it's, it's not an all or nothing. I've, I was, <laughs> I was talking to a friend recently about cryptocurrency and He's one of those guys that did well and he was asking me, I'm like, dude, I don't, I don't do cryptocurrency at all. Um, but if you've made good money on it, sell a little bit of it and be happy, you know, and keep some in if you want, but you don't have to do an all or none. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One last comment on this topic. I was listening to the Animal Spirits podcast this week and they had a great quote, which I think epitomizes or encompasses why people aren't equipped to buy stocks and invest in. It was what did he say? Michael Batnick said, people tend to shop for insurance when the tornado's in the process of blowing their roof off. And it's true. That's people are reactive. Most of the time they don't, our brains aren't wired to think long-term and to wrap our minds around successful long-term stock picking and things like that. And that's why we should buy index funds and forget it. I would, I can't think of any person I would recommend to buy individual stocks. Maybe put it in the entertainment factor instead of going gambling. Yeah. If it's, <laughs> I, I hold on to mine. I think it's entertaining. I, I like it, but almost all of my new money goes to index funds. I want to make that clear. And I enjoy the process. The stocks I own, I enjoy reading about. I'm a nerd and they're all tech stocks, but yeah. And I didn't know about index funds when I bought all of these. So yeah, I set it and forget it. Any what do you think, Doug? I was just going to say, this is not financial advice. It's just entertainment. So we're not advising anyone on anything. Okay. I, any other thoughts on the mutual funds? Ready to shift gears? Uh, I want to 
comment on one more. Yeah. There was a fund that I was creating. Um, and it was so interesting because everybody was jazzed about it. And then we just started looking at the fees and how much it was a cost. Cause it was, it was a really unique low traded type of product, that type of thing. So fees go up, that kind of thing. Um, high risk, very complicated, tough for the sales guys to get across because it's just this newer idea. And then you just start backing into the fees and you're like, holy cow, we're going to have to charge like a hundred. I think it was like 157 bips, which is 1.57% for this active management. And I'm like, how are you guys going to consistently keep on beating that? And, and what happened is, is this product that I was working on, it was really tough to index. So that was about the only way you could get exposure. And this was commercial mortgage backed securities. Um, so in that sense, it's like, okay, yeah, there are, to me, it was still very costly. I mean, everybody was getting paid in that situation. Um, but to get exposure to that type of um, market, it's going to be a higher cost. It's going to be completely different than the S&P 500 and whatnot. But when I was working on that project, I was just like, well, but couldn't you just kind of index, not even use CMBS, like just use some, something else and get to the same place? Like that's, that's the thing is like these financial guys just are like, oh, this is the coolest thing since sliced bread. And really you can get to the same place. It's just, it's just like, you know, you can have a Mercedes or you can have a Chevy or let's say a Honda. You can get to the same place, but they cost you a boatload more. Right. So that was, that's my summary on the active financial management. And I think, you know, part of that is the simplicity versus complexity and people are like, okay, like if we're going to make a lot of money, it can't be this simple with index funds, even though, like you said, at the end of the day, it's basically the same returns with far fewer people involved, a yep. lot fewer fees, maybe less risky. So you have a higher likelihood to be successful with an index fund versus yeah. the fancy you know, mutual fund where everyone gets paid. Just because you can doesn't mean you should, right? Just because yeah. you can make that financial product. Subprime mortgages, just because you can make them doesn't mean you should. <laughs> so we, uh, we know you because you're part of the FIRE community. And I'm curious, what, what's the background? How did you discover FI? Um, it sounded like 10 years into your career, you were like, ah, things are a little fishy. So uh, kind of walk us through those early days. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, so like childhood, I was always concerned about money because my parents were. We didn't have a whole lot to go around. Um, and I think that's what ultimately got me to the point of, yeah, I'm going to figure out how to make money. Um, and luckily, I had a super smart college roommate, real good friend. Um, and he kind of introduced me to the financial side of things because he was a finance major. I was uh, in industrial tech. So I uh, bought my first stock in college and... Um, just kind of got interested in it. And I went off, did my career, started out in manufacturing, and my sister was working for a financial company at, at the time. And I realized quickly that I didn't want to be in manufacturing. So I went to this financial company and I was like, wow, this stuff's pretty cool. I get it. Yeah, and I was like, I don't want to take any tests. I don't want to work any phones. And I ended up taking a series six test and Ended up helping people on 401k accounts. And I was like, yeah, I kind of have a knack for this. Um, and that was kind of where the light bulb went off. Um, 
long story short, got to climb the ladder in the financial world. And um, at one point, it was when I was making those portfolios for financial advisors, I just realized that this is not necessarily where I want to be. And I found a article by Mr. Money Mustache about that time. And it just, I was just like, wow, this is interesting. And I proceeded to read like the entire blog within the next month or two. I was like, this guy's got to figure it out. Like I need to decrease my spending, make more money and retire as soon as possible. <laughs> so I basically, in all reality, I just kind of mimicked what uh, Mr. Money Mustache had laid out and um, just kept on pursuing things from there. Um, interesting enough, because I started to become a super saver, like I always saved, I think I, think I figured it out around 17%. Um, but once I found that article, I started saving about 70% and really just cut down my lifestyle, cut down, I, I'm married and have a family, cut down our lifestyle, which we were never extravagant. My wife's very frugal, which helps a ton. Um, but, uh, yeah, did the whole, Hey, I can get out of here in seven years and, and basically do what Mr. Money Mustache did. The other thing that I want to say is when you when you are enlightened and you start saving that money and you have a big cash pile behind you or investment pile behind you, you're so empowered. And ultimately why I'm sitting with you guys today is because I told my employer back then, hey, I'm going to move to Colorado. I wouldn't mind still working for you guys, you know, but I'm, I'm moving no matter what. And I didn't care what the answer was. And they're like, uh, yeah, we still need you. And I'm like, well, I can work remote. That's fine. And um, packed up and moved to Colorado and worked for them for about three years after. And then was able to figure out a good severance pack. But yeah, nice. that's a different story. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. I love what you just said. I'm going to repeat it. When you have a huge cash cash pile, you are so empowered. And that's so neat that you're willing to ask for and you're willing to advocate for yourself in a way that perhaps you wouldn't have had the courage to if you didn't have that money backing you up. So I think that's pretty cool. Were you married when you found Mr. Money Mustache or were you with your wife at the time? Yep. Okay. Yeah, I and, and like I said, luckily she was frugal at the beginning because I've, I've heard so many stories of like, I'm on board with fire, but my spouse isn't. And I'm like, geez, that would be really, really tough. Yeah. Really, really tough. I, I think I know people, I'm not going to say any names, but there's two I could think of that have, and none of them are big people in the media. So don't jump to conclusions here, listeners. But I, I can think of a couple of people who I know who have probably gotten divorced. And it's not that the other person was wrong. It's just that if you have that money in common, that informs so many other values, right? That determines what you want to do with your life and how you spend your time. So people see it's all about money, but it's really not, right? It's about what you want to do with the money and what that money is going to allow you to do with your time. So that could send you off on a completely different direction once you, once you find it. And yeah, I, I can't imagine if I was in that situation, if one of us would have been frugal and the other one would have been not, you would have had to somehow try to get the person on board, which could be difficult because it is, it's all encompassing. And what happens if you can't, how do you reconcile your partner? And you might not be able to. Yeah, it's so two things that you said that I I discovered on this whole fire journey is 
you get a chance when you have the money and you're kind of like thinking beyond your job and and all that stuff you really got to reflect on your values and that's a lot of responsibility people don't realize that because you have like no matter what you're always like guaranteed or going towards oh i got to make this money and i can compromise my value like i felt like that in the financial industry i can compromise my values a little bit because i'm making this money and this is my livelihood but when that's not in the equation anymore, you have a huge responsibility of yourself of what do I really truly value? And I, I, I don't know if people realize that before or when they're getting to that point of the FU money or the, the I'm actually going to get out of this. It's a big responsibility to take a look at yourself and say, all right, what are my values? What do I want to spend my time on? And I, I'm not going to have a corporation or mom and dad or whoever telling me what my values should be. So good. I want to go back. You mentioned you thought you were saving about 17%-ish mm. before, and then it, did I hear it right, 70%? Yeah. So where'd that gap uh, come from there? That, that's a lot, <laughs> yeah. right? So, yeah, yeah. And you were like, we, it wasn't too, you weren't too frivolous before. So yeah. Yeah. Any, any observations? Well, I mean, a lot of that has to do with just salary increases mm. um okay. luckily i was pretty successful um once i kind of hit you know i kind of i started out working the phones you know i wasn't making very much money um in the financial industry but <laughs> i always like to say this like i'm pretty much average other than my height um I'm how not, tall are you six five <laughs> pretty good. Pretty um tall. i don't know maybe that's average now the kids seem taller um but yeah, it's, it's, if you apply yourself, um, and I think a, a big thing is being good with people, um, and just kind of paying attention. I think you can do pretty decent, you know, and luckily because of my pretty decent increase in income that enabled us obviously, but you know, um, for a while there, we we're living on like 45 grand a year, you know? As a family of four. Okay. Including mortgage, I take it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We were, we were pretty, pretty scarce, I would say. Okay. And then where did you move from if you were willing to, to share what high cost of living place or big city or what was it like? Yeah. I know this is a higher cost of living place. Um, I, I was in the Midwest and so it was pretty cheap okay. to live. Um, and uh, that's a beautiful thing. Like if you have a decent salary and you're living there, you can really sock it away. Yeah. Nice. Yep. Okay. And you mentioned your, your wife was fairly frugal. So she was generally on board. Any sort of uh, struggle with that? Just moving forward um, as you were like, all right, let's do this. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't know if there's ever a let's do this moment. Um, she was always frugal, didn't spend a whole lot of money. And, you know, I was a little obsessed with the whole retiring early and all that kind of stuff. And I would, I think she just, we, we, like, we didn't have that many, I'm my, I'm mainly the money person. So we didn't have like super in-depth discussions about whatnot of like, this is how we're going to do it. This is how we're, and she was just always kind of along for the ride. So, um, ignorance is bliss, I guess. Um, but I don't think she ever felt like she's giving up anything. Like, I, I think there's people that are like, I want to be able to have my coffee in the morning at Starbucks and I want to be able to buy the brand new car and 
all that stuff. And um, she was never that way, which is super helpful. If anything, I was that get way. When I, first, when I first graduated from college, I bought a truck off the showroom floor. Okay. <laughs> what, what kind of truck? Uh, well, it wasn't that. It looked cool. It was a Mazda B3000. Had a V6, but it was the Troy Lee edition, so it looked awesome. Okay. All but, right. Yeah. That was, that was my whole start of, like, spending stupid money. And then, you know, eventually I got it figured out. Is that the Ford Ranger version? Yes, it yeah. is. Okay. Yeah, it was like, <laughs> yeah. But I was like, all right, I'm going to buy a truck, and then I'm going to buy a boat, and then I'm going to, you know, have all this fun and stuff. And then I realized when I was in manufacturing, I hated my job. Like, that is a tough gig. But I was getting paid well. Actually, I should take that back. I had a little stint of getting paid well in manufacturing right out of college. And then I was like, screw this. And I went to the phones. And I didn't get paid. I made like half as what I was making before. But I was single. I mean, it didn't matter. And I figured I'd move up pretty quick. Got it. Yeah. Let's continue on and talk about the day or the or about the time you left. You've been done with work for about three years. But how difficult was it? And if you want to go into any of the mechanics about how you separated yourself from your job. Yeah. Um, so my last job I would say was if you would have, if you would have talked to me from the beginning and say, Hey, this is where you're going to be. I would have been like, Oh wow. That's like my dream job. That's like awesome. And, um, like I said before, I kind of got disenchanted with the financial industry. So, um, kind of, kind of had a breakdown with just the pressure and just everything. And I took a little break from that job and I came back and I was just like, wow, this is, this is horrible. Um, luckily for me, I was in a situation where I was working on mutual funds overseas, which are called USITs. And, uh, the, in the industry is going through a lot of changes, a lot of, um, downsizing, things like that. And, my company was actually going through some stuff and they're like, well, here's what we got going on. Like, are you interested in moving overseas? And I'm like, nope, not at all. Cause I had this stockpile of cash and they're like, well, okay. And then, um, probably three or four months later, they're like, well, we're going to lay you off because we're going to pick somebody up in London. And I'm like, that's fine. I mean, that's great. Um, so they brought me in. They had the, uh, I don't know what you call it, the layoff interview or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was probably smiling through the whole thing. So they literally <laughs> paid me a big chunk of money to leave. So, yeah, but I was, there was a lot of um, baggage before that of just being stressed out and being stressed out with my own values too. Like, I'm like, I don't want to do this. This is not how I want to help people. Um, and then just dealing with all the egos. Cause I worked with senior management at the firm and just kind of realizing how things are really done and all the ulterior motives and the backstabbing. And I saw it all and it was just ugly. And I'm like, this is, this is not a good way to live. So, yeah. Yeah. One thought I've often had is you could deal with a, a semi shitty job if you've got really good people that you enjoy. And uh, on the other hand, maybe if your job is really great, if you work with a bunch of jerks, maybe it'd be tolerable. But it sounds like you 
maybe had both, like a high-pressure job and <laughs> not-so-great people. I'm curious, what was the source of the pressure from the job? <sighs> Greed. Can I say that? Like, um, I mean, you're if you're a publicly traded company, you're always having to meet the numbers. You're always having to roll out new products, which I was on, like new coolest products. How So you would take $10 million of seed money, put it in this mutual fund, and you had to hit these targets of how much money this would accumulate. You'd have to get the sales guys on board. You'd have to get all this stuff lined up to make the next billion dollar fund, right? That's a lot of pressure. That's a lot of angst. And especially when you're, um, I'd say a mid-major, you know, and then in your heart of hearts, you're also like, well, people should just index. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like it's, it's just a lot of pressure. And like when, when you're president, I remember I was in one meeting and the president of the company, I was doing my presentation and he was, he was kind of jerky sometimes. And he's just like, hard stop. We're done. Done. And everybody's just looking at each other like, whoa, okay. And that was in the middle of your presentation. That was it. Yeah. And it wasn't necessarily totally on me. It was just like a culmination of a bunch of stuff that had going on because I would only go in to these executive meetings at certain times. Like I didn't get to be there for the whole thing because there's, you know, super confidential stuff going on. Um, But yeah, it's just like, okay, whatever. (laughs) <laughs> but again, I had a big cash pile of money. I was like, well, if they fire me tomorrow. I don't care. <laughs> I'd like to circle back to one thing really quick, which kind of goes back to our previous conversation. I think mutual funds are kind of, they're born to fail because people look at quarterly results and short-term results, like annual results. And you kind of have to answer, I don't know how much pressure there is on you to produce that, but any successful investment should be over a long period of time. Do you think, is that a correct observation? hundred percent. Um, and to add to that, these mutual fund managers have mandates. They have certain parameters that they cannot break. So they might have this fantastic idea. And that's why hedge fund managers got super popular, right? Is because they can basically do whatever they want whenever they want. Um, but your average active mutual fund manager really kind of has one hand tied behind his back because he has this criteria that he cannot go outside of the boundaries of. So he might have the best idea in the world or really think they should load up on X percentage of stock. He's limited or he or she is limited. So yeah, they're, they're definitely set up to fail. (laughs) And then you throw fees on guaranteed. So you got laid off. Do you think you would have quit without being laid off? And if so, like how much longer? Cause I, I was laid off myself and I probably wouldn't have quit. Maybe I'd still be working there now because everything was mostly fine and I was pretty autonomous. I didn't have the same kind of stress level that you were yeah. talking about. So yeah, would you have quit? Um, yes, I think I would have. Um, the The pressure and the stress was getting to me so much that my family life was suffering. And <clears throat> I kind of pride myself on being able to stick it out as long as I did and get laid off. It was really weird because there's a, there was a guy that was, we kind of grew up together, so to speak in that company. And we got laid off in the same room at the same time. And he wasn't hundred percent sure that that was going to happen. And it was, it was kind of fitting just how it all went down and stuff. And he's like, you know what, if I do get laid off, eh, 
oh, well, you know, super smart guy. He's going to land on his feet. No problem. That type of thing. But he wasn't part of the fire movement or I talked to him about it. He was always pretty, pretty good with his money, but I don't think he was that far along. And then it sounds like you had already hit Phi and you continued to work. So how long was that? Well, hmm. Uh, yeah, kind of. Yes. I mean, basically with the, with the severance package, it kind of put me over that, like that number mm-hmm. and that, that feeling and stuff. Um, so it was, it was kind of timing wise. It was kind of all at the same time where I felt pretty good, like fire wise. Okay. So yeah. Gotcha. And then are you, are you operating on the um, 4% rule? Was that your metric or was it some other pieces of the puzzle? I don't know. You could have like real estate or other stuff too. Right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't. So I, I'm, <laughs> I'm not as set up as a lot of people are. Um, and I think that might be part of the message here too, is like, I would say I'm really close to the FU money and the fire money, you know, like as far as how much you should have. Um, and uh, and that's, that's something we could talk about a little bit later too. Um, I don't have, well, ultimately my wife is a teacher, so we have an income from that, but she works 80%. So she has Mondays off, which is fantastic, right? That's a great way to start the week is with Mondays off. Um, so we have that income coming in and then I just do random fun, screwy jobs as a handyman. Um, and that brings some money in and we really don't tap into our fire assets. We just live frugally and that, that brings in enough for us to have a, a decent lifestyle. Perfect. So you quit work. Do you remember the day that you, the first day that you didn't have to go to work that you would normally have been at work? Did you do something special? Is it memorable or? <laughs> no, it's not memorable. <laughs> I was, um, decompressing. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, I mean, the best thing was the summer that I was laid off after I was laid off, I fished almost every single day, which was, you know, that's pretty memorable. How many people get to do that? Um, but no, I guess I didn't have any like memorable thing to do. <laughs> what did you do, Carl? Uh, mine was pretty good because I happened to have a friend in town, Leaf, the physician on fire was there. So it happened to work out that we had a dinner at my house with him and Pete came by, um, Mr. Money Mustache. So all these people who had like Mr. Money Mustache kind of triggered my journey when I found that blog. I met Leaf along the way and there were a couple other people there who had been with me for my journey or who I discovered or made friends with. So it was kind of poetic. It was so neat to sit down and have friends that had been with me or who had triggered the journey. And they're all right there on that day, which was kind of, which was pretty cool. That's really awesome. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And then uh, going back uh, again, sort of timeframe. So you discovered Mr. Money Mustache. How long was it from then until you stopped working when you got laid off? I want to say it was close to seven years. Okay. So kind of what you were, is that, that's what you were aiming for basically? Yeah. Like, um, luckily I had a chunk of money when I found his article. And then I was like, wow, I can, I can do this. And it's interesting because I think he's written about it. Like basically anybody can retire in seven years or something close to that. Right. And I'm like, hmm. And you do the math and you're like, yeah, you can. (laughs) You just gotta, you just gotta do it. Right. Which is a lot harder than it sounds sometimes. (laughs) 
now that you've been on the other side for three years, um, looking back, would you have changed how you did it? I know a lot of our conversations center around that. So any observations, anything you would do different that could help people out that are on the journey? Yeah. Um, it's always that question of comfortable, right? Um, if I could have gutted it out a little longer, maybe saved a little bit more, um, might've been a good thing. Um, but on the other hand, it's so, so nice not to have to work, especially when you're working at some place that you don't want to be. So it's tough. Like you can't just say, here's the money end of it, but here is the mental health of it. Like this is kind of priceless, right? Um, if I had to do it again, I think I, well, this is total hindsight, but I probably would have done some stuff in real estate because of my skill set. Um, in terms of handyman and probably had a rental comp, uh, rental income, Mm -hmm. um, set up a little bit better. And actually that that's probably in my future. Um, but it would have been kind of nice to have a house or two under the belt to create some income. And can you talk about your handyman skills? How did you learn? Did you grow up like preparing Uh, stuff uh, with family or whatever? I think it's just in my blood. It's, uh, Both of my grandpas were super handy. My dad was actually an industrial tech teacher for a while. Um, And it's so funny because like I'll I'll tell my wife now, like I'll go do some handyman project and it just comes natural. Like I don't feel stressed about it at all. Like I can figure this out. Um, But like when I was in the financial industry, I always felt like I was swimming upstream. I just like, I can do this, but just because you can do it doesn't mean you should be doing it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I love building stuff. I love designing stuff. I Last summer I built a, a thing called a Vardo and it's a camper, but it's based off of like the old 1800 gypsy wagons. So okay. it has like a certain style and stuff. And um, it's so enjoyable to create with your hands. And, and at the end of the day, you can like step back and look at what you've done. And that's always been in my blood. <clears throat> and I always joke too, like, um, I built this huge spreadsheet at work and everybody liked it. And we actually had a Chinese company come in and, and they tried to patent it and all this stuff. It was like a, a way to basically analyze your internal mutual funds to see which ones. Oh, and that was the other thing too that sucked about my job is I, I was called the Grim Reaper at times because I was the guy that would kill mutual funds too. Like they weren't bringing in enough money. They met certain criteria and that's basically what the spreadsheet was about. Um, but I'm like, yeah, the spreadsheet, this is probably as many hours as building a house by yourself by hand, but it's a freaking spreadsheet and you can't even see it. Like nobody even knows what it really truly does. Yeah. <laughs> or it well they know what they do, what it does but it's just i don't know it yeah. wasn't near as satisfying as building a house gotcha have you built a house no but someday okay yeah we're going to let's find out <laughs> yeah. i'm not kidding either let's find a place in the mountains and build two properties it's cheaper if we do it at the same time we can help each other out. Yeah. I, I love a project like that yeah I absolutely love it but uh you and i are kind of in the same place in our lives eric in that we both have two children and I've thought about how my life is going to change, how my five life is going to change post kids. But I'm also curious to know if you've thought about that. And also, where do you see your life going while you still have kids? I know you, you stepped off from your job. You did a lot of handyman stuff. 
we're working on some projects together, which we'll talk to a little bit later, but do you see your life? Uh, how do you see your life changing before the kids leave and then after they're out? Yeah. Well, I have a saying, you are not truly fire until you, the kids are out of the house because yep. <laughs> holy cow, they're, they're a lot of work. Um, just like logistic wise, getting them to and from, but mentally wise too. Like you want to try to get these human beings on some solid footing before they're, you know, pushed out of the nest. Um, I would say fire with kids. It's not a whole lot different. You just, I think you just have a little bit more time to do, to dedicate to your kids. Um, but I don't have any like big, huge, huge plans with, with the kids. Like we're not going to go live in Europe for a year or anything like that. Um, after the kids is a great, that's, that's almost like when you're, when you're working and this is not against my kids, but it's like when you're working and you dream about fire and like, Oh, it's going to be this other side of the world and this whole, this enlightening experience. I'm like, well, maybe that's kind of what it's like when the kids move out. I was like, oh, now you have more time and freedom. Your resources are a little bit different. Um, but I would love to like live in a couple different places throughout the country or even maybe outside of the United States for a couple months at a time. Like I think Colorado is always going to be our home base because we love it here. Um, but like if we could spend three months in XYZ and then three months in another place and then just kind of rotate that and build our own little communities in those different areas that to me, that would be ideal. Yeah. I, I love that idea, especially traveling with the season. So you, you're oh, at places yeah. at the ideal time and you don't have to deal with, you know, whatever you don't like people like different kind of weather, you know, but then you get to check out and real, like you said, have community sort of a slow travel idea. You could change it up a little bit, especially if you don't like, buy property in the place and you just, you know, rent a house for two, three months or something. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's, that's, we have so much flexibility now, which is cool. And it like way back when I was like, Oh, it'd be cool to have like a couple acres in Phoenix and then a couple acres in Colorado and a couple acres in Oregon. And then, and then it's just like, yeah, but what happens if you get bored there? It doesn't quite pan out. Like you can just rent a house in some cool place for a couple months and be like a local. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. That's my plan too. Although I think I really like being near the water. So I think we actually might buy a house on a beach. And what I want to do is make it like two or three bedrooms with a couple bathrooms and invite all our friends there. So if you're friends with me, my friendship comes with benefits. Sweet. <laughs> but not those kind of benefits. <laughs> Housing benefits, it stops. There. I've seen you at the pool, Carla. You're looking pretty good, bud. <laughs> you, you have been working out. Have you continued to lose weight? Um, I have, it jumped up a little bit due to the camp mustache I was just at. There was a lot of really great food at that. So I suspended my intermittent fasting and went a little bit off the rails, but I should be back by this weekend. Um, the hard thing will be our trip to Germany for 10 days. Hopefully I can, they've had pretzels and I love carbs. Mm. I love carbs. I try so to avoid good. them in my daily life, but someone's like, someone just texted me yesterday. I'm like, what's good about Germany and Berlin? He and he's like, you'll have the best like bread you'll ever have in your life. I'm like, oh. <laughs> it'll be worth it. It'll be yeah. worth it. And we don't have any, any notes on like fitness or health or anything, but I'm always interested about that oh. kind of stuff. What, what do you do to stay in shape or in any <sighs> normal routines or anything? Yeah. Like 
So right now, my wife and I are training for a triathlon, which is three weeks away. Like a full triathlon? No, well, it's it's a it's I put it in the sprint category ish. Okay. Um, but it's an adventure one, so you get to well, <laughs> we're cheating. You can either swim or paddleboard. We're gonna paddleboard on the lake because I'm cool. horrible at swimming. So that's a good option. And then you mountain bike and then you trail run. And um, I just, I'm getting, you might not be able to hear it. I'm getting over a cold that I've had for like two weeks. And uh, I haven't been ramping it up like I should. So it's going to be a struggle, but yeah. And then I love to do bike packing and I don't know if people are aware of what that is, but it's basically hiking, but with a bike and you got all these, and it's not touring, but you're like going out on single track or double track and you're going out in the mountains and you just hang out and bike, you know, 50, 60 miles a day. And I love doing that. And hopefully later on the summer, I'll, I'll, I don't have the time to do the full divide, but I just want to do the Colorado section of the divide. Um, so yeah, I like to do that kind of stuff. And I think that just by nature keeps you in decent shape. Gotcha. That's awesome. Yeah. And that's cool. The triathlon that you described, it's like the, like the slower version of some of the things like, uh, you said it's a, a trail run. So usually, I mean, I've done a couple trail runs and sometimes people just like walk fast, Yeah, you know, it's yeah. like not as competitive perhaps. Yeah. Especially actually- when it's really rocky and you just like, when you're tired, you do not want to fall because it'll hurt a lot. And you just want to finish. Like yeah. That's, and that's the goal. This is the first one you guys have done. First one, we, uh, <laughs> we were training for a triathlon probably about, how old is my kid? 16 years ago <laughs> and then we ended up moving and we never did one and now here we are gonna actually do one so that's awesome yeah now we didn't we did a little uh prepping earlier for what we were going to talk about but we didn't go deep into it however you sent us a note that m- this ted talk it's called why some of us don't have one true calling can you talk about that yeah and it sounds super interesting I didn't watch the video, even though you sent it to us. Did you watch the video? I did not. <laughs> I want to, well, though. I ran out of time. But it's got, a good, it's got a good tagline. It's a multi-potentialite. Um, and I was like, yeah, that's me. Um, so oh, now I'm going to have to. It's Emily, but I can't think of the last name. That's one thing I my memory. We'll link it but, up so yeah, yeah. we can get to it. Yeah, but it's it's this thing. This Okay, so it's this concept of like, Hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know? And everybody's like, Oh, I'm going to be a doctor. And that's what I'm going to be for the rest of my life. And you're going to figure this out by the time you're 18 and all that stuff. And it's like, no, you can do all kinds of cool stuff. And I think, um, it really resonates with the fire community because I started out in industrial tech. I was like, ah, that doesn't work for me. And then I went into finance. I was like, Oh, that's really interesting, but I got disenchanted. And now here I am being a handyman slash t-shirt designer, which we might talk about. Um, but you can do all kinds of neat stuff. And a lot of times, um, the money will follow. Um, and why, why do you just like cage yourself so much? Like there's so many people that have so many cool skills and you just have to like be able to tap into it and not let culture say, Nope, you got to be this forever. You got it. And I really admire the people that do the mid-year or the midlife career changes. And they really realize that, Hey, maybe I can do something else. Um, I don't, I don't think I have the capacity to be one of those people that can be 
a doctor, a lawyer, and an engineer all at the same time, but maybe in 10 year increments, you know? Right. And that's, that's the thing too, is like, I have found myself in a pattern of doing things for like three years and then I'll go do something else. And even in my career, I, you know, it was all in finance, but it was very different jobs. And, um, I think a multi-potentialite just loves to do all these different things. And just because you're artistic or if you're engineer minded or whatever, it's like you guys, I mean, you guys are into music, but you know, that's not how you started out and who knows, maybe you're the next John Mayer or something. Well, I don't think that's going <laughs> to happen. You never know. Thank you. Yeah. I, I, I believe in you, Doug. Thank you. Well, and Carl, you've been retired for five years. We haven't celebrated the anniversary officially, but have you observed something like this in your own life? Yes. And I don't know because I didn't listen to the TED Talk. Was it doing things in sequential like for these three years, I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do this after that? Or what was... No, it wasn't that laid out. This this gal, which I could relate to, is kind of all over the board. You know, like, I'm really interested in this. I'm really interested in that. Um, and it was just kind of trying to find your way and not letting culture just say, all right, you're 18. Where are you going to be? You know? Yeah. You know? And, and that's the thing, too, is like, I think the question was not what are you going to be when you grow up? It's what are the things you're going to going to be? Like, multiple. Like, that's okay. Mm-hmm. So. So I, I want to build on this just for a second and to answer your question, Doug, it's, it's really good and we should talk about this more in the five-year episode, but what I found, and our society isn't really set up this way with a 40-hour work week, is I love to do different things and I like them to and I like to do them at the same time. And that doesn't mean I'm drawing and writing and all that within the same hour, but for a morning I want to write. And then for the afternoon I want to work on more artistic stuff or practice the gu- guitar or the piano or or work on this podcast uh, so it's really cool to be able to to pivot like that and to be able to do things for shorter periods of time or maybe do one thing for a couple of weeks. Say I'm going to focus on this for a couple of weeks and then I'm going to do something else. But we're not really set up that way because, hey, here's your 40-hour a week job. But then after that, especially if you have kids, you have time for pretty much nothing else except mowing the lawn and doing the dishes and then waking up exhausted, repeat, repeat, repeat. So I think that's – and I, I think it's – changing a little bit we've got the gig economy now so people are doing stuff more on their own terms but we had a podcast we interviewed jessica from the fine ears and one of the things i was thinking about when we interviewed here her is i think the 40-hour work week is a relic for a couple reasons that's one of them and i don't think uh pete just had a, a tweet about this too a lot of people aren't productive over 40 hours they can be extremely productive but maybe for half of that or a quarter of that and then their mind wanders and they're just not as good as they could be. And it depends on the work, if it's creative work or physical work. But yeah, I think we need to rethink how we work. And I, so don't you just feel much more refreshed when you have a day like that? Like yeah. mm-hmm. I tend to wake up really early and sometimes I'll draw in the morning and I just, and then, but then I know later on I'm going to be building a deck or I might even be working on my finances. But you're almost, like, okay, I get my two or three hours for this, and now I'm jazzed to go do on, do my next thing. And I think you just apply yourself that much better. Because, like, when you have a nine-to-five and you have to be at your desk for eight hours a day, it's, it, there's so much time that's just wasted. Yeah. It's just it's, – it's ridiculous. And one, one sort of side story about having to sit at a desk, occasionally – Back in my old job, I would get a, let's say I got a spreadsheet and it required some manual work and whatever the processing was took like four hours. 
well, I would get it, figure out how to do it much faster, say in like 15 minutes, macros, like do some formulas. <laughs> yeah. But the thing is, I would never tell anyone, <laughs> right? Because then you just watch yourself three hours and 45 minutes. Yeah, yeah. And then you could also, this was like when you could schedule with Outlook to send emails in the future. So, you know, you could just schedule the email and it looked like I was just, you know, working. It was fine. Then I could listen to podcasts or just mess around, read other websites. My struggle was making, we had an IM thing and it would, the dot would turn green, but I found out there was, or the dot oh. would turn right if you were offline. But then I found out there was a setting, like go idle after like an hour. Well, I was, remember that. That yeah. sucked, yeah. didn't it? Well, like it, you can see if somebody was at their desk or not. Oh yeah. Yep. And then we, we had a, we had an app. I was a terrible employee, apparently. Very resourceful. <laughs> so we had an app and it was called Auto Mouse Mover and it would move it like three pixels or whatever <laughs> the fuck you want. Awesome. Right. <laughs> so yeah, you could just like walk away, go do your thing. Don't and, you uh, yeah. don't you find it ironic like at jobs, like when you're inter getting interviewed, they're like, Are you entrepreneurial and stuff like that? And you're like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, no, I can do this in fifteen minutes and I'm gonna use you know, the rest of my time to go figure out how to make you more money. No, I'm going to use that time to figure out how I'm going to go, you know, enjoy life more. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's so, it's so ironic. Oh yeah. Well, it's tough in the early years. I think like, right. When you get a job, it's really, you're susceptible to the influence of whatever kind of bullshit they're telling you. Mm -hmm. And then it takes a few years and you're like, oh yeah, this is nonsense. (laughs) Like my performance reviews are dumb. My eighth meeting of the day. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. All but performance reviews. for, yeah, I would say I got like two to three hours of good work in me. Conversations like this are different. Eventually we'd run out of steam, but I think I could, you could talk a lot longer than work, I guess. This doesn't feel like work. So I think we're a little, we're starting to, to get a little off track, but there's another sort of technical thing that I want to get into. And that's the, uh, those SEP, I don't, I don't even know oh, what this is. You, you got to yeah, define it. Tell us yeah. what this is. It's kind of an advanced topic, right? Yeah. So this kind of goes back to that point of um, our net worth and where we're at. We're kind of fu money, kind of fire, just kind of on the edge type of thing. And um, something we've really been kicking around is using uh, a SEP, but not a SEP IRA, substantial equal periodic payments. And it's kind of a nice little loophole with uh, 401ks and IRAs. And you, and you definitely have to check with your financial service provider on whether or not they'll support it. Um, but it's basically an accounting situation. Um, but you can take money out of those retirement accounts without getting that 10% penalty. So you can set it up and say, okay, so say you have a half a million dollars in your in your retirement accounts. And you're like, you know what? I'd kind of like to tap into that. I'm 46 years old. It'd be kind of nice to have a, you know, a couple grand uh, extra a month. And um, so you can basically go off of the Fed midterm rate and you can withdraw 120% of whatever that's published. So right now in May, 120% is right around 3%. So conservative, it's below the 4% rule, right? Um, You can turn it on and basically start withdrawing that money over the course of monthly installments. And then you just account for it on the backside. 
But the IRS is like, oh, you took money out of your 401k, huh? There's a 10% penalty for that. And you're like, no, I did the substantial equal periodic payments. And so they don't, they don't charge you that 10% okay. uh, tax penalty. And it's based on <clears throat> your, um, your retirement account has to have that enabled. They have to allow it. Yes. So like uh, in my situation, my old employer, the 401k, I called them <clears throat> and I said, Hey, can I set this up with you guys? And they're like, no, we don't, we won't, we won't do that for you. But a lot of just regular online brokerage firms, you can talk to them and they're like, Oh yeah, no problem. Okay. So would you roll it over to someone that yes. does it? And then, excuse me. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Any downsides to it? Like what are the pros and cons? Yeah. So uh, the, the the biggest downside is you're tapping into retirement funds, right? So the way that I'm kind of grappling with this or justifying it is, A, I'm retired. <laughs> <laughs> so why not tap into that money? Because I've accumulated a lot of my wealth in qualified accounts. I don't have a ton outside. So that's that's part of the reason why I'm going down this path. Um, so yeah, you're going to tap in. Uh, but the, I think the, the pro is, is like, okay, so, so say you are getting an extra $2,000 a month to live on. What happens if you don't use it? Well, you can always save it. It's not a big deal. Like, you know, it's just kind of like, in my mind, it's going to be like extra fun money for us and extra just, just in case to have around type of money coming in monthly. Um, because like what I do is I do handyman stuff, which doesn't agenda. I mean, I'm super cheap and just like to have fun and help friends out. Um, and I usually work maybe three, three, three days a week. Um, in some weeks I don't even work at all. So it's just, uh, just to kind of supplement that and make sure that we have all of our expenses met. Um, and we also have money left over to have some fun. And if I don't work that month and we're just screwing around, I still have money to come in to pay for the groceries and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, um, ultimately though, I don't think I'll ever run out of money. And um, when you crunch the numbers, we're going to be fine. We'll have a frugal lifestyle. It's funny because when I first started, I thought I needed $3.3 million to be happy. And, you know, that would be, that's the number of how much I need to live on. And it's dramatically dropped as far as what my number is and still have a fantastic lifestyle and enjoy things. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, with the SEP really quick, uh, it, the money you take out of that is untaxed as ordinary income. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. And one thing that Doug talked about was your account has to allow it. I know a lot of people take a 401k and I think you, Put it in a rollover IRA, I think it's called. Yeah, yeah. So it'd go over, you'd roll it over into a a traditional IRA, not a Roth IRA, because that's a whole nother ball game in terms of taxes and what you're doing. Um, but yeah, once you get it over into it, you basically set it up with that company, and they will send the periodic payments. And then when you file your taxes, they're basically, hey, did you take any money out of a qualified plan? You say yes, but then you say how you did it, and then that ultimately says you don't have to pay that 10% early withdrawal penalty. Okay. So you can execute this against the tra traditional IRA. Or traditional IRA. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Yep. And then you mentioned you could turn it on. Can you turn it off? Oh yeah. That's, that's a point I got to. Yeah. No. <laughs> okay. You are committed. And that's, and that's why I said, well, if you don't use the money, you just save it because you can't, you can't turn it off. Um, 
And the other thing too is that you have to be careful of is that midterm, that Fed midterm rate is kind of wonky. Um, not that long ago, it was like one and a half percent. And just with the interest rates climbing really fast real recently, it's hit that 3%. And I haven't seen the June one yet, but I'm, I'm going to guess it's probably three and a quarter. Um, so um, honestly, I didn't really have an, I, I didn't want to turn it on because the interest rate was so low. And I wasn't able to tap into as much money as I wanted to. Um, so now with the midterm rate at a decent level, like I think three percent is like perfect because you know you're not going to break 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 into your capital anytime soon, if at all ever. Um, the other thing too is like you can eat. It's not again. It's not an all or none deal. Like so, say you have a million dollars in your four hundred one k rolled over to an IRA, you could break up that IRA and maybe just take three hundred fifty. And turn the SEP on with that. I mean, there's so many different ways to do it. And you're like, oh, yeah, you know, I only, I only want like, I don't know what that would compute out to, but, right, you know, $1,200 a month or whatever. It, it, Got it. Yeah. So it's it's a it's a great tool that's out there. Um, rule of 72T, I think, is what it's officially called in the IRS books. Um, but yeah, like, uh, I don't know of anybody, and I know quite a few people that are fire, that are really doing it that way. Um, but I've always had it in the back of my mind and I, I think I might turn it on. Nice. Cool. Do you have any other thoughts here? Uh, about the SEP or anything else? And do you have any thoughts in your head at all? Yeah. I No, it's pretty <laughs> empty like most of the time. No, I want to call Eric out on one thing and maybe calling him out is too strong of a term. Uh -oh. I want to hold him accountable. Uh-oh. Eric and I went on a, no, no, it's, it's all good. Eric and I went on a great hike. We hiked at Horsetooth Reservoir up in Fort Collins a couple of years ago. And for part of the hike, Eric was talking about all these different ideas of stuff he wants to potentially do. A couple of them were real estate related, which you alluded to. Uh, one of them is a t-shirt shop. And by the way, uh, Eric is managing our, our t-shirt shop. It's going to go live. We'll have a soft launch soon and a bigger announcement shortly what is the url for the t-shirt shop which we'll put on the show notes? yeah um it's live long live often basically use your time how you want to use it yeah it's cool so we're going to have rebel entrepreneur entrepreneur shirts on there we're going to have mile high five t-shirts on there and all eric's motivational t-shirts on there and eric also threw out a couple other things like potentially financial coaching yeah i yeah, um, we did talk about that, and it, it kind of boils down to I have all this knowledge about the financial industry and also my personal like fire journey and stuff, and a lot of that on the financial side was evil knowledge, and I want to use it for good. <laughs> so I would love to help people figure this kind of stuff out and yeah. just understand, yeah, I'm a pretty average Joe, but if I can do it, a lot of other people can do it too. So you're kind of like the Darth Vader who saw the good and now yes. it's going to help people. Hopefully you live a little bit longer than he did after he realized the, the good <laughs> side. But so I'm just calling you out on all this to hold you accountable. And I think probably the best part of all these projects or many of them, like you've done the carpenter stuff and we've worked together. The best part about working on some of these projects is working on them with friends. So I'd love to collaborate with you and who knows, maybe if you do the financial coach and you come back on and we could financial coach someone on the Ooh, show in real yeah. time. I think that'd be awesome. So if anyone in the YouTube comments would like to hold Eric accountable, <laughs> uh, I, I encourage that because I want to see Eric do the things he wants to do. 
Yeah. I like that idea. Awesome. So we'll put a link for the website. Any other places you want people to follow along? Yeah, I do have an Instagram account of cool. Live Long, Live Often. Um, and that's just kind of uh, just, it's actually relatively new. Um, and I'm out on Facebook too, but it's just inspirational stuff of having fun. Um, and that's kind of my catchphrase, but I have another catchphrase of uh, having fun, trying not to die. And I have a mountain biking one of that. And I think I'm going to make a construction one of that. And all those, you know, climbing, all those, all those great things where you could actually yeah. die, but have fun. That's cool. That's awesome. awesome. I think it's better to die while you're having fun than croak while you live to a ripe long age and you're not having fun. 100%. How about the perfect day question, Doug? This is your signature question. Oh, yeah. What does a perfect day look like for you? Yeah. That's so funny because um, when I was working in corporate America, I had it written down in my wallet and it's changed so much since I don't have to show up to work. I would say wake up slow, meaning have a nice cup of coffee, maybe design a t-shirt or two. Oh, and I have a comic too, which is about being a dad, but we won't worry about that (laughs) as a dad. Um, Design a t-shirt, draw a comic, probably doing some type of exercise, mountain biking or running, have an awesome lunch with good friend, um, and then probably build something work on a project and I'm a super social guy too. So if it, if at the end of the day, like I'm hanging out with buddies and we're going to a brewery and drinking some beer, that would be awesome. That'd be a perfect. It sounds like a perfect day. Yeah. <laughs> I spent one with you a couple of weeks ago. It was, yeah, great. that was a great day. Very awesome. Well, Eric, this has been great. And I hope we can have you back on again. Um, any parting thoughts? I mean, you you told us so much, so you don't feel yeah. obligated to say anything else. But do, if you have any parting thoughts, feel free. Yeah, I appreciate being on here. Um, one thing that I want to tell people about is um, if you have a spouse, find time for yourself. And one thing that I've shared with a lot of people is my wife has Saturday mornings to herself. And a lot of times she'll go on a hike and I have Sunday mornings to myself. So you get like a four hour chunk of time. Now, a lot of times I'll go mountain biking or build something, but that helps the marriage a lot because you can count on it and you can have that designated time and you get to look forward to it and you're not accountable for anything else. The other spouse takes care of the kids or whatever. I'd highly recommend people that are married to do that. Cool. That's a great tip. Thanks, Eric. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the show. That was the Mile High Five podcast, and I'm Doug Cunnington, the balder host, and Carl Jensen is the cool, sexy one. If you dig the show, please do three things for us. Number one, tell a friend, a family member, an enemy about the show. We really don't care who you tell. Maybe forward them a specific show that you know that they will like. It's the single most helpful thing that you can do to spread the word. It's like giving us a virtual high five and uh, actually we don't give high fives in, in person. So the virtual kind's pretty good. And more importantly, your friend or family member or even your enemy will appreciate the fact that you were thinking of them. Number two, make sure you're following or subscribed on your podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, YouTube, whatever you're using. And that way you won't miss a show. And number three, please leave us a rating and review. We read them on the show occasionally, and you might hear yours out there on an upcoming episode. Quick disclaimer, 
This show is not financial or legal advice. I'd actually be surprised if it sounded like it. It's really just for entertainment, and that's at least what we're hoping for. But seriously, get advice from professionals. Carl and I are just two guys with microphones that sit in my basement and talk. So we'll catch y'all next week. Eric, what kind of music do you listen to? Mm, everything and anything. What What did you listen to driving down here? I didn't. I was collecting my thoughts. You're thinking that's smart to do. <laughs> smart to do. Um, Carl, do you ever drive around and not listen to anything, or do you always have some some kind of noise going? I do, but it's pretty rare. I like to catch up on my podcasts, but sometimes I listen to music as well. On the way here, I listen to a Tesla podcast. But a lot of times, the interesting thing is, I think we talked about this in an earlier interview, Doug, is sometimes listening to things, especially a podcast, is what, I don't know why, if I'm quiet, if there's no sound, my brain won't come up with anything. But if I put a podcast on, often my brain starts coming up with things unrelated to the podcast. And then I turn it off and entertain that thought. Do you ever, I think there's some term for this, but I don't know what it is. Oh, uh, yeah. I don't, I don't know the term either. I, um, I, I was going to say, I have been listening to more music lately. I've been playing guitar more. So I've been trying to listen to more music and less podcasts because Half the time, the podcast, I'm like, well, it's either really dumb and I shouldn't be listening to it anyway, <laughs> or it's, um, it makes me feel like I'm missing out and I should like do something. I'm like, oh, I need to do this marketing thing or something. So it kind of stresses me out. So I'm trying to chill out a little bit. So I love the power of music. Yeah. It's yeah. just awesome. Like how much you can get pumped up. Like think about it when you're in a college stadium, you play House of Pain Jump. Yeah. Everybody's like just pumped. And just uh, two nights ago, I had a friend that really stressed about getting something before the sheetrockers come. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to help you. We're going to build this wall quick. We threw on some heavy metal and we just went <laughs> going. at it. Yeah. We got it done. That's awesome. But, you know, it's music. It's